Welcome to the short week, everybody. Um, Thanksgiving week as we get geared up for the holidays. And I know a lot of people only have the only have the three days to work this week, which means that, you know, and your boss will understand this. There's really no reason to do anything at your job because you only got three days. And so you can't start anything. You won't be able to finish it. Better to come back next week and really get down to work. You know what I mean? Which really every week can sort of work that way um, if you're good at being lazy because you figure you wake up on a Monday and, and you say, well, it's uh, I, the week just started. I'm getting into, into, the, into, the, into the groove of things. So I'm not really going to do anything today. And then on Tuesday, the week's still kind of starting. Then on Wednesday, you wake up and you figure, well, the week's almost over. So I might as well just wait till next week. And that's when I'll really get down to business. Um, but anyway, uh, it's uh, uh, Thanksgiving, of course, the second best holiday on the calendar. And um, I, well, maybe that depends because I just saw this article in the Daily Wire Headline, pretty horrific. Headline is, studies show that few people actually fight with family over politics on Thanksgiving. Few people actually fight with family over politics. Then the article says, studies show that few Americans argue on Thanksgiving. They prefer to practice that age-old axiom, agree to disagree, as they enjoy another slice of that delicious pecan pie. Um, In reality, very few Americans actually fight about politics on Thanksgiving, notes Abraham Gutmann of the Philadelphia Inquirer. A 2017 HuffPost YouGov survey found that only 3% of Americans said that they are very likely and 8% are somewhat likely to get into a political argument with family members during Thanksgiving dinner. Um, And I I read this and I just think, how utterly boring. My God, I mean, what kind of a boring family do you have that you don't argue about politics and religion on Thanksgiving? I know people always say, well, the two things you don't talk about with family or ever are politics and Thanksgiving and, and religion. But I've always had a slight variation on that, which is, you know, my, my axiom is the only two things you talk about are politics and religion and sports, I guess. We'll throw in the third thing. Basically, anything that has the potential to turn into a screaming match is worth talking about. And if it doesn't have that potential, I don't what what's the point? Um. You know, I, I don't even understand it. I, I just can't imagine getting together with family and specifically avoiding the interesting topics. What are you even doing? What do you talk about in that case? Do you just sit there, this, this cranberry sauce tastes like cranberries. Yes, it does. Yes, I also agree it does. And you go around the table. Yes. What do you think about the cranberry sauce? Well, I think it tastes like cranberries. And then someone, kind of a loose cannon, comes in. What about the mashed potatoes? Well, I think they taste like potatoes. Yes, me too. Me too. Yes, I agree. Then you have the comic relief. What if green beans were red? (laughs) Humorous. Quite humorous. This has become a fake conversation between androids, apparently. But that's, I just can't, you know, I've been at at a dinner table in my life a time or two where all interesting topics, politics and religion, were forbidden. And I just wanted to drown myself in the gravy boat. That's what I wanted to do. Just just start waterboarding myself with gravy um, to liven things up and to put me out of my misery. Now, if I were to do that at my Thanksgiving table, um, it would just start a three and a half hour debate about the ethics of enhanced interrogation while I lay there dead on the floor. And see, that's what family is all about. Okay, um, I want to, so uh, a bunch of things we're going to go through today. And 
We'll start with this as we're a few days from Thanksgiving and talking about football. Uh, we'll begin with Harvard and Yale playing each other this weekend in the, the classic traditional game. And, uh, and, then, and then this happened. Yale. The game is currently in a delay because there is a student protest sit-in at midfield on climate policy. This took place at halftime and has delayed the start of the third quarter because students are having a sit-in protest at midfield of Harvard-Yale. Yes, those are climate protesters again, once again breaking the law, once again getting in the way, once again just generally making asses of themselves and nuisances of themselves. Every time they do something like this, um, they make more and more people crave the destruction of planet Earth. So it's, it's really counterproductive in so many ways. Uh, in this case, they delayed the game for over an hour, which is a big problem actually at Yale because the, the, the stadium there doesn't have lights. And so they end up finishing the game in near darkness with no lights. Uh, the protesters were eventually apparently ushered off the field after an hour. Some who refused to leave were arrested, which is good. They, they left like 20 or 30 people were arrested. I've been waiting for there to be mass arrests at these things. And finally they do it. But once again, I have to, I have to ask, what, why wait an hour? Why let this go on for an hour? Why aren't, why aren't the police there in, in, in 15 seconds? Why give them an hour to just get it to just shut the game down? That's what I don't get. Just show up right away and start dragging their butts off the field. That's all you have to do. If they're blocking traffic, just right away come and drag them off. What? Why? Wait. Why give? Now give them. An, we'll give them about an hour to do this. Yeah. Why not? Since when is that okay? Especially these days with the with the focus on security at these kinds of events. And you're just letting people camp out on the field for an hour? Now, if it were me, I would have I would have started the second half because they came out at halftime, stayed for an hour. So if I was in charge, I would have said, just start the game. But start the game. If the cops aren't going to drag them off the field, just start the game with them on the field, kick the ball off, and run right through them. And it, it would have, I would have done, in fact, it would have looked something like this. Harmon will probably try to squib it, and he does. Ball comes loose, and the Bears have to get out of bounds. Rodgers along the sideline, another one. They're still in deep trouble at midfield. They tried to do a couple of... The ball is still loose as they get it to Rodgers. They give it back now to the 30. They're down to the 20. All oh, the band is out on the field. He's going to go into the end zone. He's going to be out of bounds. The Bears have won. The Bears have won. Oh, my God, the most amazing, sensational, dramatic, heart-rending, exciting, thrilling finish in the history of college football. Now, that would be entertainment. If you can imagine that same play and that call, except with climate change protesters getting trampled instead of a, instead of, instead of a marching band. Now, that would be entertainment, as I said. But... In a way, um, I guess I'm glad that these climate protesters have taken it to this level. In a way, I'm glad that they're interrupting football games. I hope they take it down south next. Because um, there are, you know, it's, it's one thing if you're at Ivy League and you're doing this, but I, I, I hope that they take it down south and uh, try it at college games down there. Because this is really the last straw that will officially turn everybody against them. 
You want to interrupt traffic and make me late for work and get me fired. That's one thing. You start messing with my football, and now we've got serious problems. There are some lines you just don't cross in America, and, and I think this is one of them. And, but this, I think, is, is the fatal flaw with these climate protesters. They're, well, the first fatal flaw is that they're protesting the climate, which there's very little chance of that having any effect. Okay, it's like if there was a, you know, the, you have a drought, and so you go and interrupt a football game to protest the drought, which is basically what they're doing. It's the same idea. It's probably not, I mean, you're, you're not going to convince the weather to change its mind because they read your signs. But the other problem is that they're ostensibly trying to save humanity, in their minds anyway, but they hate humanity. That's the one thing that jumps out at you when you, when you see them doing this stuff. They just have a total contempt for normal people, and, and they don't mind getting in our way and screwing things up for us. That's why they're not, they're not doing things to interfere with billionaires and the evil corporations and all of that. They're not impeding on the dreaded rich. No, they're not doing that. They're shutting down traffic during rush hour. They're stopping trains from, from running. They're delaying football games. These are tactics aimed totally at normal working class people. All Everything they're doing is aimed square at us. It's like they think they'll solve climate change by annoying the hell out of middle class people. Uh, and I'm not sure I see the connection there, but, but that's what this is. And, 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 but, but I think that's because this isn't really about solving anything. This is about their general contempt for people and for Western civilization and they, their need for attention. That's what this is really about. Now, before we move on, actually, I have to, I want to give a salute to somebody since we're on this topic. I, I got a, a Twitter message, a direct message yesterday from somebody last night. Uh, it goes by the name Jay Russell. And this is the message that he sent me. It says, uh, hi, do you have a second to talk? I was a vendor at the Harvard-Yale game who lost a lot of revenue because of the protest. I saw a lot of inside info about what happened if you want it. And so I got this, and I get messages like this a lot when there's something in the news and somebody was personally affected by it and they'll send me a message saying, hey, I know something about this or I've got a perspective on it. And so I send them a message back like I do for, for anybody. And I said, uh, can you tell me over message what happened? I'm interested to hear. And then, and then this is what he responded with. Of course, thank you so much. I was selling food just by the entrance of the Yale Stadium. But since the game got delayed, I didn't have enough heat slash gas to sell food the entire time. I'm mad as hell. But I heard some students talking by my stand right before and during the protest. They were saying things like, don't start until we get the okay from Joe. And stay there until Joe gives the single signal. So it seems like this guy was pretty central to the whole thing. And then I responded with, do you know who Joe is? And then this guy says, Joe Mama. It, that was it. That was, he was setting me up for that the entire time. And the thing is, I clicked on this guy's profile. He made this account, this fake account, just so he could message me. And he went through that whole long story just to hit me with the Joe Mama at the end. And I, I respect it. I really do. Salute to that guy. That is, I respect a good troll game. And that's, that's pretty good. And I fell right for it. Um, some people are saying that I, I shouldn't have fallen for it. I, you know, I, where's the red flag on that? Maybe when he starts getting into the Joe thing. But he just, he, set, he, he lulled me into a feeling of, 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 of confidence. And then he hit me with it. So that's good stuff. All right, let's go to... Um, I wanted to mention this quickly. Rick Perry is 
getting a lot of grief today on social media and, uh, and by the mass media for something he said on Fox News about Donald Trump. So take a listen. God's used uh, imperfect people all through history. King David wasn't perfect. Uh, Saul wasn't perfect. Solomon wasn't perfect. Uh, and I actually gave the president uh, a little one-pager on those Old Testament kings about a month ago. Hmm. And I shared it with him. I said, Mr. President, I know there are people that say, you know, you, you said you were the chosen one. Uh, and and I, I said, you were. I, I said, if, if you're a believing Christian, you understand God's plan uh, for the people who uh, rule and, 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 and judge over us on, on this planet in our, in our government. And so people are, people are making fun of this. And I, look, I'm not, a, I'm, um, I'm not a fan of the Donald Trump, King David comparisons. I'll say that. One, it's, it's tired and played out. Two, Trump is not a king. Three, there really is no similarity that I can see. I've, I've, I'm very familiar with the biblical texts about King David. I don't really see any similarity at all between him and Donald Trump, aside, aside from the adultery thing. But with that said, I want to stick up for Perry here. And, and, I, and I think the reaction to this, as people are attacking him for saying Trump is the chosen one, the reaction shows, again, how the media fails to understand basic Christian theology and Christian thought. And so they're always embarrassing themselves in an effort to embarrass Christians because they don't understand Christianity, which is a pretty big flaw. If you work for the news media and you don't understand this system of thought, this religion, this philosophy that the majority of people in, your, in, in the country uh, ascribe to. So Perry is not saying, despite the King David comparison, Perry is not saying that Trump is a, a messianic figure or a, a prophet or, or anything like that. He's simply saying that our leaders are, in some sense, appointed by God, that it's all in God's will, so whoever's in charge is there according to God's will. That's his point. That's what he's saying. And as he apparently also said, Obama, Obama was appointed by God as well for his time and for the reasons God had in mind. Now, you don't have to agree with this, and if you aren't a Christian, you probably won't, but that is the Christian approach, the Christian philosophy on these things, that this is all in God's will, and that um, God and that leaders are there because they're ordained by God to be there. This is, this is scriptural. It's in the Bible. St. Paul's pretty explicit by this about this. Now, um, I would agree that among the more fanatical Trump fans, there's been a messianic sort of flavor to their Trump support. But that, again, is on the fanatic extremes. And, and it is gross. It's un-American. It's unbiblical. It's pathetic. It's blasphemous. It's idol-worshiping. It's a disgrace to, to see anyone make a messiah out of a political figure. I, I'm totally opposed to that. I hate it. It disgusts me. Yet the same was done, and this is the point, the same was done on the fanatic extremes of Obama's support. How quickly that's forgotten. So I think what we're seeing now with Obama and now with Trump is the beginning of a new era, a, a new trend in American politics of, on the extreme ends, turning our political leaders into prophets and messiahs. Now that's not, I say new, that's not a, it's certainly not a new thing in world history, and it's, I wouldn't even call it a necessarily a totally new thing in American history. There are people that did that with you know, J JFK. But 
people didn't really do that with Bush. Okay, there was no there was no Messiah complex with Bush. There weren't people doing that. I don't think people really did that with Clinton. So, um, if you want to call it a resurgence or something, we are seeing that now. For people forgetting that these are just bureaucrats, they they aren't monarchs. Uh, they're really supposed to be our employees. They're supposed to work for us. That's the attitude we're supposed to have about them. And this is why I go on all the time about how I don't think politicians should have fans. I don't think you should be a fan of a politician. You want to be a supporter, fine. But you're, you're a supporter and it's a very conditional support. As long as they're doing things that you think are right, then you support them while they do those things. But if they do things you don't think are right, then you criticize them. And so we should all be fair weather supporters when it comes to politicians. This stuff you hear sometimes about, ah, loyalty. No, we don't have loyalty to politicians in this country. We have loyalty to the flag. We have loyalty to the country. We have loyalty to each other, to our families, to our friends. We should not be loyal to politicians. That's a, that's a bad move. And that's not just a phenomenon on the right or on the left. It's on both. And I find it equally disturbing on both ends. And it's interesting that in the media, they've noticed some of this on the fringes of Trump's support, and and now they have a problem with it when they were the ones doing it themselves when it was Obama. But again, that's not what Rick Perry's talking about here. That's not how I read it. Uh, The Perry clip is is not an example of that. He's just talking about what the Bible says about about our political leaders. Um, The people who say that Trump is going to single-handedly save America, or he is single-handedly saving America. People who fawn over him at rallies like he's, like he's the Beatles and they're teenagers in the 1960s. That would be an example of the messianic stuff, for sure. But I don't think that's what I see here. Okay, let's go back to a theme we've talked about a lot on this show, especially recently. But I need to revisit it again because this story just cannot be ignored. And what I'm going to read to you here, fair warning, is very disturbing, also graphic. So if you just be prepared for that. All right, this is from the Daily Mail. It says, children as young as six are being taught about touching or stimulating their own genitals as part of classes that will become compulsory in hundreds of primary schools. Some parents believe the lessons part of a controversial new sex and relationships teaching program called All About Me are sexualizing their young children. One couple told last night how they are so disturbed they withdrew their sons from lessons at a school where the program is already being taught. All About Me is being rolled out across um, across 241 primaries and could be adopted by other local authorities next year as part of the government's overhaul of relationship and sex education. Um so this is, this is not in the United States. This is in the UK. Family campaigners and religious groups warn that vague guidelines issued by the Department for Education meant schools could soon be providing sexual material to young children that many parents would consider inappropriate. Um, and then it goes on. I, I recommend going to Daily Mail and looking up this article. Uh, it says, under a section called Touching Myself, teachers are advised to tell te- children that lots of people like to tickle or stroke themselves as it might feel nice. They're also instructed to inform youngsters that this may include touching their private parts and that while some people may say this behavior is dirty, it is in fact very normal. However, the youngsters are warned it is not polite to touch themselves in public. Okay, so we get that concession at least. 
It is an activity that should do, be done alone in the bath, shower, or in bed. Um, in the same lesson, children are given scenarios which they must judge to be okay or not okay. In one, pupils are told that when a girl called Autumn has a bath and is alone, she likes to touch herself between her legs. It feels nice. At this point, teachers are advised to remind the students of the rules about self-stimulation. Oh my gosh. Um, like I can't even read any more of this. I just, like I said, Daily Mail. It, a couple other outlets have picked it up. Now, I'm not going to repeat everything I've said recently in general about the efforts to sexualize our children and normalize pedophilia, which is what this is. In fact, this isn't. This isn't. This is not just the gradual normalization of pedophilia. So, I, in fact, I would not call this necessarily the normalization of pedophilia. This is pedophilia. That that's. This isn't like the lead up to it. Okay, um, we're not on the slippery slope on the way to it. This is this is it. Any teacher or administrator who teaches a lesson like this is sexually abusing children and is therefore, in my opinion, guilty of pedophilia. They're pedophiles. Perhaps not in a legal sense because the law is screwed up, but the fact of what they're actually doing can't be avoided. You are, you are sexually preying upon children. You are grooming them. The fact that you're doing it in school as, as part of a lesson plan makes no difference. And for any teacher who says, well, I have no choice but to give the lesson plan, well, that, that gets into this, it, I was following orders thing. That, that excuse only gets you so far. And there are times in life when you don't follow orders. And if the orders are go and participate in the sexual abuse of children, then your moral duty is to say, no, and if you lose your job over that, fine. So in my opinion, this is just straight up pedophilia. Plain and simple. Now, this is not happening yet in the United States. This is across the pond, but we know that Europe is just a true is just a few train cars ahead of us on on the train to Crazy Town. It's not even like they're in a, a whole separate train. They're they're on the same train, just a few cars up from us. So wherever they are now, we soon will be. Um, and why will we be there? Because for one thing, this is a natural consequence of our whole approach to sex ed with kids in school. This is why I've always said there should not be sex ed classes at school. We get into the debate about should there be abstinence education or safe sex education. Neither. How about neither? Okay, we shouldn't do either one of those things. That's the wrong question. It's a false choice. You want to teach kids about anatomy? Fine. Go ahead. You want to teach them in them the basic biological facts of human reproduction? This is how babies are made, et cetera. Then great. Yeah, of course, you're going to teach that. That's science. That's fine. But it shouldn't go beyond that. There's no reason to go beyond that. It's not the school's job to take it beyond that. It's not their business. Because anything beyond the basic facts of human reproduction, anything outside of that, gets into opinions and value systems. It gets into the schools, the teachers' personal and ideological views about human sexuality. And really, it might even go, it, it, it gets even past that in some of these cases. It sounds like we're getting into their, into their fetishes. Um, but 
whatever it is, it's it's their personal perspective, as demented and dark and and disturbing as that perspective is. Getting into what people should do, what they shouldn't do, what's normal, what isn't. Why in God's name should we accept or allow the schools to give those opinion, those kinds of opinions to our kids? Th- these kinds of opinion-based lectures on sexuality. Who, who, who would have ever thought that this is appropriate? What good argument is there for it? And you might say, well, uh, the, the schools have to do it because the parents aren't doing it. Well, first of all, this is the problem that, yes, what, 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 the, what this curriculum says to kids, it's true that a lot of parents aren't saying that because they shouldn't be. Okay, if you're not a, a, a degenerate, deviant predator, you're not going to say that stuff to your child. And, and you see, that's the issue. When you get into, well, you have to, schools have to do it because the parents aren't doing it. It's your opinion that it should be done at all. So it would be like if I said, well, you know, there's a problem and uh, the uh, parents aren't bringing their kids up in the faith. And so teachers need to stand up there and say, Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Repent and believe. The, the left would go insane. There would be cries of child abuse. Uh, they would say it's unconstitutional. It's oppressive. It's wrong. There's no place for it in the school. And I couldn't say, well, the parents aren't doing it because the answer would be, well, who says it needs to be done? And besides, it's not for the schools to do. And in fact, I would agree. Now, I wouldn't agree that that's abusive or oppressive. Um, it, it, it wouldn't be morally debased the way that this sex ed thing is. But it, it would be wrong. You know, as a Christian, I would say it's it's not for it's not a teacher's job. It's not the place. It's not the time for uh, for them to get up there and, and, and preach like that. I think you want to teach the Bible as a matter of history and literature, then I absolutely think that that should be taught in school. It's the most influential piece of writing uh, ever compiled, and so obviously it should be taught. But in terms of your personal views on religion, no, you're not, you're not passing that on to the kids. It's not your job. Same with this. Um, so if a teacher's not supposed to get up there and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, then they also shouldn't get up there and preach the gospel of modern sexual enlightenment. That's not okay either. It's not the teacher's place to share her religious views, and it's not her place to share her views on sexuality. And if you're taking that stuff out of it, if you're taking all the opinion-based stuff out, if you're taking all the value-based stuff out, you're taking all that's ideological out, and you're, and you're, you're saying the schools have no place there, then you've really, you've dismantled sex ed. There's no place for sex ed anymore, which, which is exactly the point. Because everything that's left is stuff that you could teach in science class. That's, that, those are things that belong in biology and anatomy. And we should do that. I'm not saying that the schools should tell, you know, sixth graders that babies come from storks that drop them on the doorstep. I'm not saying that. But there's a huge, vast chasm that separates this is how babies are made from let's teach kids about masturbation. And not only teach them about it, but encourage them to do it. 
But this is where we're headed. We, we, we really are. Uh, and I've been, look, I've been beating this drum about the, um, the sexualization of children, the, the normalization of pedophilia. And, and I've been talking about this and I'm not the only one, but those of us who've been talking about it, we've been told for years that, uh, you're exaggerating. You're it's, it's not that bad. You're being dramatic. And look at what's happened. While we've been warning about this, you've got this. You've got the you know the drag queen story hours that have become popular. You've got child drag queens dancing at gay bars. I mean, and, and dozens of other examples like that. Maybe eventually everybody else will wake up and see that, oh, you know what? Actually, we're not being dramatic. This is really happening. And if you want to avoid it happening in this country and in our schools, then what that means is, is not, to, it, 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 that doesn't mean that we come in and say, let's do abstinence education. No, it means we say, let's not do this stuff in school at all. Because actually, we talk about abstinence education. Uh, now, I would prefer that, obviously, over this, but I don't really want the teacher. At a, at a, if I sent my kid to a public school, which I don't, but if I did, I wouldn't want their teacher their health teacher or whoever to stand up there and give them a speech about the glories of abstinence. I don't want them doing that. It's, it's not your place. It's not none of your business. I, I just don't want you talking about that at all. I don't want you helping my kid avoid having sex. That to me is really weird. It's, it's better intended at least than this other stuff, but it's still weird and wrong and it's just not your place. Sorry. And, and the other thing is, I don't trust, no offense if you work in the schools, but I don't trust you to do it. I don't, I don't trust you to do a sufficient job and that, because we're getting into, it's a very difficult message to relay and for, to make it effective and to make it resonate. I just don't trust you to do it right. And so what I'm saying is, butt out, get the hell out of it. It's none of your damned business. Just because we send the kids to school to learn ABCs and one, two, threes, and to learn, you know, all the algebra and, and history and, and that, that doesn't all of a sudden mean that you have a say in every aspect of my kid's life. Why would it mean that? All right. Let's move on to emails. Mattwalshow at gmail.com. Mattwalshow at gmail.com. This is from Unny. Uh, says, hey, Matt, I am Ani, and then gives me a pronunciation guide to pronounce that right, which I appreciate, by the way. A regular watcher of your show, I wanted to thank you for dedicating several valuable minutes of your podcast regularly to defend the innocence and safety of our children, be it James Younger, drag queen book reading sessions in public libraries, or the issue of permitting biological boys into the female changing rooms in school. Thank you for fighting what really matters to people like me. Far too many conservative podcasts focus on the bigger issues all the time, like elections, impeachment, and Medicare for all. I sometimes feel that the focus on the big issues takes attention away from the issues that affect us most. I'm not a father. I'm not married, but I hope to experience the joy of being a father one day. Having people like you defend our children gladdens my heart and makes me look forward to being a father one day. I hope to be half as good at it as, as you are. Um, well, thank you. First of all, I, uh, I think there are many people you could look to for examples on how to be a great father. I wouldn't necessarily look to me. I'm still uh, still figuring that out for myself in many ways. But Thanks for saying that, and I, I appreciate it. Uh, I, I do hear, and I'll tell you why I appreciate it, because I, I do hear complaints 
from people sometimes that I don't talk enough about politics. I don't talk about impeachment, really. These, as you say, bigger, broader issues. And and I don't. uh, Because, first of all, I figure you're hearing enough about that everywhere else. You can go literally anywhere to hear analysis on that. And and, and some of the analysis is very good. But you've probably heard it already by the time you get to me. And also, for me, those just aren't the issues that I find to be the most important or the most interesting And I don't think they're the most relevant to your life. I don't think most people, when you wake up in the morning, I don't think you're worrying about impeachment. I don't think your first thought is about the president or Nancy Pelosi or a politician. I hope it isn't, right? Probably if you're a parent, for instance, one of your first thoughts is about your kids. And one of the worries that you have when you wake up in the morning and when you go to bed is about the culture that your kids are inheriting. And stuff like that. So that's that's what I find to be the most important. And you say you say that impeachment and everything, those are the bigger issues. I know what you mean by that. But I think, just to clarify for everybody else, and I don't want to speak for you, but I, I think what you mean is bigger in the sense of broader. Those are the, the broader issues. And they are. But I don't think they're bigger, and it sounds like you would agree, they're not bigger in terms of importance. And so... In a way, I think that I do try to focus on the bigger issues in terms of the ones that are more important and more relevant to our lives. Okay, uh, this is from Eric. Says, greetings, oh great one. I humbly approach you and I'm seeking justice in this cruel world. I have been wronged. I hope that under your rule, the world will be a better and more just place. I am writing to see if there will be a law against such atrocities under your great rule. I regret to inform you that after pumping gas at a local gas station, I returned to my car like nothing had happened. Upon entering my car, I noticed a distinct smell. I came to realize that my hand had been coated in someone's cologne from previous pumping. I find this absolutely unacceptable and wonder what a punishment could be for such a horrible act. I'm not sure if this is a larger problem across America or just a local one as I live on Long Island. Uh, So someone lathered themselves with cologne so thick that it rubbed off on a gas pump and you could smell that over the gasoline? there's no reason to to punish that person, I'll just say. They've already probably suffocated from their own fumes or suffered brain damage, which would maybe explain a lot over over up there on Long Island. I don't know. Uh, So this is one of those self-punishing infractions, I would say, but I'm I'm sorry you had to go through that. Dear Glorious Leader, this is from Simon. With all the rules you've talked about, uh, about, uh, about chili on your show, with all the times you've talked about chili on your show, I don't think you've ever given a ruling on whether chili dogs are appropriate, which seems like a big oversight, as a theocratic chili authority, how do you feel about them? How does cheese play in? This is one of those questions that haunts me, frankly, and I did avoid it. Uh, I got a few emails about it, and I decided to finally just answer it. On the one hand, I enjoy chili dogs. On the other hand, can you make the case that putting chili on a hot dog is an act of desecration? I think you could. Uh, Is it not blasphemous to treat chili like a mere condiment? Um... So I settle on a compromise, Simon. I I say that, I look at it like this. If you're going to dump a a $90, if you're going to put red wine in your pasta sauce, you're not going to put a $90 bottle of wine in the pasta sauce, right? You're going to put a $7 bottle of red wine you picked up, you know, at the bottom rack at the liquor store into the red wine, uh, into the the pasta sauce. Um, and, And you aren't, and under my regime, this will be a matter of law, but you're not going to take a high quality bourbon 
like Woodford Double Oaked or, or, or Blanton's or Baker's or, or even Four Roses Single Barrel and put Coke in it, you know, put soda. You're not going to do that. You're going to drink it neat. You're going to drink it with ice. Those are the two appropriate ways to drink it. And so I think it's the same thing with chili and hot dogs. If it's, if it is a, if it's real chili, if it's good chili, and you put it, put it on a hot dog, then that, of course, would be treasonous. And you would be uh, deserving of, and in fact, will receive death for that. But if, it's, if we're talking about canned chili or some, some abomination like that, or let's say, in fact, you're at someone's house, and they serve you chili, and they put the chili down in front of you, and you look at it, and you see black beans, and you see corn. And you see way too much tomato sauce, tomatoes in there. You know, so it's like this tomato-based corn and bean soup that they're trying to pretend is, is chili. In that case, then what you would say to that person is, please bring me a hot dog. Because what you've given me here is a bowl of a condiment. This is not a meal. So give me a hot dog so I can have a real meal. Do, do that or get the hell out of my house, even though it's not your house, it's theirs. But you can kick them out of their own house for that. Um, and then burn it to the ground. You know? and, and I think that that would not be an overreaction at all. Finally, from Emily says, Hi, Matt, I agree with you on the trans bathroom issue, but what about someone who has completely transitioned? What about a male who transitions to a woman and gets the surgery and everything and is living full-time as a female? Don't you think it's reasonable to allow them into the women's facility? In their case, at least wouldn't it be kind of cruel to force them into the men's room? Yeah, I, the way that I look at this, uh, two points, first of all. If somebody does that to their body. Uh, that is their choice in many ways. And so I don't think we need to reorganize society to accommodate that. Probably a better choice would be to not do that to yourself. But um, it's also kind of irrelevant because if someone does go the whole nine yards with the sex transition thing, and they're living, as you say, quote, full-time as a woman, and, and they, they look the part and everything, then it's, it's not an issue because nobody could tell the difference, right? So if you're really living that way and, and, and pulling it off, then no one can tell the difference and we don't need to change the rules because there's no issue. So I understand what you're saying and I've got a lot of emails, people asking about this. Well, what about? But that is exactly where you don't really have an issue because nobody would know. It's only an issue when, when, it's, when everyone can tell that's when it becomes an issue. And that's when you have just dudes who are, they got all the parts of dudes and they look like dudes and everything. And they're just waltzing into the women's room. So when we start changing laws and policies, it is specifically for those dudes. Because this other category you're talking about, I guess for them, they're not really having much of a problem because nobody knows. Now, do, what do I personally think? I, I, what's my personal view? My personal view is if you're a male, you use the men's room no matter what you look like. And if you've gotten surgery, you're still a man, so you still belong in the men's room. You're a woman, surgery or not, you still belong in the women's room. But my point is, in terms of practically speaking, in terms of everyday practice, I guess that wouldn't really come up because nobody would know. Okay, um, I think we'll leave it there. Thanks everybody for watching. Godspeed. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, and The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring, senior producer Jonathan Hay, supervising producer Mathis Glover, supervising producer Robert Sterling, technical producer Austin Stevens, editor Donovan Fowler, audio mixer Mike Coromina. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production, copyright Daily Wire 2019. Hey everyone, it's Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Claven Show. The impeachment hearings were full of explosive, devastating bombshells, like the fact that we're being governed by a sinister cabal of deep state bureaucrats who think they can overrule our elected representatives. So what do the Democrats do now, poor things? All the experts say they'll impeach, and maybe so, but they're daisies if they do. I'll talk about it on The Andrew Claven Show. I'm Andrew Claven.